but to respect and love yourself and visualize that. Spend time during the day, at night, whenever. Make time for yourself to send love to your body. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an extraordinary and legendary guest to share with you today. Dr. Bernie S. Siegel, who prefers to be called Bernie, is a sought-after speaker, media presence, and is the author of many books, including the blockbuster Love, Medicine, and Miracles, as well as 365 Prescriptions for the Soul, which have sold millions worldwide. He's been named one of the top 20 spiritually influential living people on the planet as he's impacted countless people all over the world with his wisdom and now he's here to share with all of us. Bernie, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I mean, let me start by saying what made me do this. I went to a conference that was, I thought, for doctors to help cancer patients, you know, empower them. And when I got there, I found out I was the only doctor in the room. Everybody else there was a cancer patient. And that blew my mind, how few doctors showed up. And this was a conference by Dr. Carl Simonton. So it's by a doctor. Anyway, my patients, and I really felt that was a gift. They didn't hide from me. They all came and sat with me. And that said to me that, you know, I was helping them. But the one who changed my life, or at least her words were, I said to her, why did you come? She said. You're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. That literally changed my entire life. And I think it's you know part of what you're doing. Instead of trying to cure a disease, I'm helping people to live. Then you notice something. They don't die when they're supposed to. I mean, there were so many people I'd meet and I'd say, how come you didn't die? What, what, what went on? Why didn't you come back to the office? And then they had a story to tell about how they changed their life. Um, I was never predicting their death. I don't mean it was me, but what they hear from other doctors, you know, when you're going to die, what's going to happen is like, well, then what's the point of going back? And eventually my patients began to be called seagulls crazy patients at the hospital. And that became a compliment because all the other doctors knew this person's not going to do what we expect. You know, no side effects to treatment, outliving all expectations, everything. I want to jump back. You said that the, that patient who changed your life, that woman who is sitting by you, what year was that when that happened? 
19, well, probably about 1977 or 76. And then at that moment, was did it like hit you with a lightning bolt that this, this yeah, is? Yeah. I was in pain as a doctor. I cared about people. And I couldn't cure everything, all the suffering. I mean, it made me question God. I mean, it really redirected my life because why would God make a world where you have all these problems? You know? And so, again, it was learning how to heal and help people. So Jung said it this way many years ago. The diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. But there, the key thing is the story. For it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. And when I couldn't cure diseases or suffering, I buried it inside of me. And I mean that literally. I needed help because I'm storing all this stuff. But once you begin to help people live, you don't have to store it anymore. I mean, you're sitting together, sharing. What, what amazed me, though, I have to say, I told my secretary, send out 100 letters to our patients telling them I'm going to start groups to help them live a longer, better life. I told her, make sure you put in that it's only for our patients because I can't handle hundreds of people. Well, she forgot to put that in the letter. I couldn't sleep thinking, what's going to happen on Thursday? 300 people are going to show up. And what am I going to do with them? 10 women showed up. And that's when I realized that, and my wife labeled them exceptional cancer patients. They weren't afraid of being told, we want you to read a book. I want you to answer these questions. I want you to draw a picture. You know, I'm trying to help them. And when I say draw a picture, it could be draw yourself in the operating room, your chemotherapy. People have drawn the devil giving them poison. And you know how many side effects they're going to have versus it's a gift from God. So all these things were like, you know, your entry fee. You did that. And then we sat together. I went over everything and you joined the group. But people would say, I'm not an artist. I don't have time to answer questions. And then I learned there were other people who said, fine, I'll be there at the meeting tomorrow. I said, wait a minute. I said, you got to write a book, read a book. Yeah, I know. I'll sit up tonight and do it. See, there was a survivor. That person doesn't die on schedule. If they're going to sit up all night, do it and come to the meeting. And the other person says, oh, well, I'll probably see you in about four months when I get done doing those things. Yeah. But I know your work has transcended from helping not only people who had cancer diagnoses, but helping people in all areas of their lives, whether they you know, have cancer or not, in terms of spiritual wellness, being happy and healthy. So I want to jump back to your first book, the number one New York Times bestselling book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Talk to us specifically about what was your impetus for writing that, what that, what that journey was like, and, and what people would, if they haven't read the book, what, what the premise of the book is? Yeah, first of all, it isn't about a specific disease. You're right there. I mean, I was a surgeon, so cancer patients. It's interesting, psychiatrists are doing this now more often, say, than oncologists or an internist, because they would see people with all these problems and realize some of them outdo the expectations than others. 
And one of them called it an immune competent personality. So whether you're treating cancer, AIDS, immune diseases or anything, it doesn't matter. There's a personality that improves your survival. Because what people need to realize is your internal chemistry is altered by your thoughts and feelings. On Monday, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. So what are you going to do? Cancel Monday? No, you have to change your attitude about that day. And that's the part that I began to see. So I didn't limit it. And literally, when AIDS came out, I had people with AIDS come to join a group to help them. And as I said, and then you'd read articles by psychiatrists. And when I tried to write articles for medical journals, they came back saying interesting, but not appropriate. When I sent them to psychiatry journals, they came back saying it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. Mm -hmm. So the book really, in a sense, gives you the structure of a survivor, you know, and what things you can bring into your life. Faith, hope, love. Sometimes it's as simple as a lawyer saying, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a violinist. So I'm quitting now that I have a disease and doctor told me I'm going to die. And he got a job in an orchestra playing a violin and doesn't die when the doctor predicts, you know. So those are the things I began to see that there's what I call a survivor behavior. You know, if, if you were coaching a football team, you try to teach people how to be the best player. And so I became the coach to try to show people how to be, you know, a survivor and gave them these various lists of things that I'd learned from patients. Often it was at lectures. I'd look in the audience and see people, oh, I thought he was dead. Never came back to the office. And I'd catch him and say, hey, how come you didn't come back? What's the point? All the doctors are telling me what's going to happen. And I say, but what did happen? And then you'd hear their stories moving. I mean, the one I laughed about, because this fellow moved to Colorado to die in the mountains. I told the family to call me. I'm close to him and I'll come out to the funeral. A year goes by, no phone call. I call up to tell the family, why did you ignore me? He answered the phone. And his, these words, I laugh at all the time. He said, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. They, so people bought, and I don't make up these stories, bought a house on the ocean in Miami, you know, brought a dog. It's just all kinds of things, you know, changed their jobs, moved. And yeah, one was a landscaper. He said, I want to refuse further treatment. I had operated on him for stomach cancer. He said, it's springtime. Got to go home, make the world beautiful. So when I die, I leave a beautiful world. Six years later, the nurse handed me his record in the office. I said, the man is dead. He's never come back. She said, open the door. So I opened the door to the examining room, and there sat John. I have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business. John became my therapist. I mean that literally, because I spent time with him to learn what he did, but most of it was how beautiful the world was. I mean, it's very spiritual 
There's a word called hisbodedus, H-I-S-B-O-D-E-D-U-S. It's about walking in nature and communicating with God. And that's how John spent his life and not dying. And I used to spend days with him out in nature because what used to be, you know, weeds became beautiful little flowers. And suddenly I was seeing beauty where I'd never seen it before. And John lived to 91. And I gave a speech at his at their 70th wedding anniversary because I thought people need to know this man and what an example he is to life. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Beautiful story. I wonder if there's any other stories that are top of mind you you could share with us that have really been powerful and impactful on you. Well, some are about, you might say, are about me and why I got into the drawings. Again, a Jung quote, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So I drew, I went to a workshop to see Elizabeth Kubler-Ross because I wanted her to help me deal with my pain and all the stuff I was burying. And I drew a picture for her of an outdoor scene. And her first question was, why is 11 important? I said, I started this group 11 months ago. Why did you ask that? You put 11 trees in the picture. What are you covering up? I said, what makes you ask that? You used a white crayon on a white piece of paper. You don't need the crayon. It's already white. So you added a layer. And, you know, by the time she was done talking to me about the drawings, I thought, wow. And, and you know, again, what I was I covering up was all my pain. And so that's why I went back to the hospital with a box of crayons. And again, everybody thought he's crazy. But then as a doctor, I could see anatomy in the drawings see, because of my training. I'm not an art therapist. I'm a doctor. So I could see that people were telling me what's going on in their body, what the best treatment is intuitively. They're unconscious. And uh, let me give you a simple example. A mother came into my office with her child. I did a lot of children's surgery. It wasn't hard to get them to draw pictures. They weren't worried about, you know, being artists. And she said, I heard you like drawing. So I had my daughter draw two, two drawings. I'm sure she has a lymphoma because it runs in the family. And she had all these big swollen lymph nodes in her neck. So she hands me a picture. One's of herself with the distorted face and neck. And the other was an enormous cat with claws that were like two inches long. I said to the mother, don't worry. The mother said, what do you mean, don't worry? Your daughter doesn't have lymphoma. She has cat scratch fever. Look at the drawing, look at the claws. And that's what she had. You know, I took one note out because it was all infected. 
And it showed that. But that's the kind of thing, again, that changed a lot of doctors at the hospital because it was fascinating to them to see that sort of thing. And then, you know, I have to add all the mystical things. I didn't mind being crazy. You know, if I'm crazy, fine. I have freedom then. And one time in the operating room, man had a cardiac arrest. The anesthesiologist, after several minutes, said, I can't get his heart started again. I'm calling the morgue to send up a stretcher for him. I yelled out in the operating room, John, it's not your time yet. Come on back. His heart started beating again. And I never forget the anesthesiologist saying, I like working with you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, those are the stories that got around about Siegel. Oh, yeah. And one, well, what's his name? Brian Weiss, who who wrote about... um, Many Lives, Many Masters. Many Lives, Many Masters. Yeah. Yeah. He was a student at Yale. I mean, I didn't hear this till many years later, but we met and he said, I love being in the operating room with you. I'm going to go into psychiatry and you are not a normal surgeon. So he loved me from all the craziness I did in the operating room, playing music, talking to patients. But, you know, the consciousness is the key because they hear you, even though they're anesthetized. So, you know, I could say stop bleeding or move the blood away or slow your heart down. Or, and it was amazing how they responded because I used to, a lot of it I would do just to convince people that they're really hearing us. And my patients would get up and some of them mentioned things they heard in the operating room. And that's what changed the anesthesiologist because there's no way these people could have heard unless they could hear while they were anesthetized. And uh, the nurses said the same kind of thing. It's wild. I, I want to take a little time as well and, and talk about 365 prescriptions for the soul. So take us through that book and why people should read it. Well, you know, I held it up for you a minute ago. I am still reading it. I don't know if you know what year it was written. I think we all, you know, why the title of it? the prescriptions, that we need to help people to live. 2009, so 12 years later, I'm still reading it. And why? Because you forget a lot of things in the past, all the lessons you've learned. So I relearn them and keep repeating them. And I always say we need to coach each other. A coach doesn't say you're a clumsy idiot. The coach tells you how to improve your performance. They're not criticizing you. And that's why prescriptions for the soul is to help people get through life. And that's why I'm always learning by the things I've done that I forget about. I mean, one that really hit my heart, you might say, years ago, we were in Cape Cod. Traffic was horrible in the summertime. A young man was in the car behind us with his girlfriend blowing the horn and cursing about the traffic and the conditions. And it's like it was my fault because I'm in the car in front of him. I asked the policeman to tell him to be quiet. And the cop said, it's not my job. I couldn't believe I got out of the car to talk to the cop because this kid is screaming all over. So I told the family, I'm going to go to the car because we were at a red light. 
And the kids were, said, Dad, you can have a gun. I said, I'm just going to go. I went over. His window was down. It was summertime. And I said, I just want to tell you something. I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. And then I went and got back in my car. He made a U-turn in complete silence and drove away. And my hope is he went home and talked to his parents about how they were treating him and how he felt. And so I tell people, be a love warrior, for instance. See, that's a wonderful prescription. Somebody's driving you crazy. Say, I love you. They don't know what the hell to do with you then. And I've had people on the street thank me. You know, when you somebody's out there like this kid, you wonder, is he going to hurt somebody? Does he have a gun? And I always go over and say, I'm sorry for whatever's going on in your life. I want you to know I love you. Every single time they have stopped yelling and walked away. And boy, do I get thank you from the people on the street for doing that and teaching them something. Well, and reparenting. I could show you the card if you want to see it. But I got a phone call, I think it's about 30 years ago, from a lady, young woman, asking me if I could give her Jack Kevorkian's phone number because she wants to be dead. She'd been sexually abused by her father and other problems, and I want to be dead. I said, I love you. You're a child of God. Let me become your father, your chosen dad. And she let me do that. So I became her chosen dad. And then years later, I'm pointing because it's sitting next to my desk, her picture. And the, the card now says, to my bonus dad, happy Father's Day. <laughs> and so when we communicate, I'm either a CD or BD. But that's what we all need to do for each other, reparent each other. I'll be your chosen mother. I'll be your chosen dad. Doesn't mean I like what you're doing, but I love you. And what a difference that makes to people. And it has saved, and I mean this, where it came from. I didn't make it up. I'm in the office. Young woman is sitting there. She said, you're my CD. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you're my chosen dad. And I didn't, you know, have any idea. What she was referring to was what I had done for her that made her want to live now. Yeah, and made her feel good about herself. Well, another, a young woman fell into the fireplace at home around Christmas time and burned her arms and chest, neck. And I had taken care of her sister when she had appendicitis, so the family called me. And she kept shrieking, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. And the mother tells me, I was always saying, you're beautiful to her. And she would scream at me. But one day when she visited me, she had a turtleneck sweater on, long sleeves, and it's 90 degrees outside. I said, Madeline, what? why are you dressed this way? She said, I'm ugly. I don't want people to see how ugly I am. And she went on to say, I got to get a job this summer. I don't have any money. I said, I can help you get a job. I'll call you when I talk to the people. What I did was call a nursing home where I knew she had to wear a uniform that would show all her scars. I told them that. They said, fine, we'll take her because I'm trying to teach her to accept herself. 
and she went and worked there. Came back to the office after a few weeks that summer. And I said, well, how's your job going? She said, nobody noticed my scars. I said, Madeline, when you're giving love, you're beautiful. <clears throat> my, one of my greatest gifts in my life. Years later, I get a phone call. Hi, it's Madeline. My father died and I'm getting married. Will you be my father at the wedding? Wow. Oh, and the song she chose, we danced together. Kenny Rogers, through the years, you never let me down. You turned my life around. And to me, that's the greatest gift I could ever have in my lifetime, you know, to make a difference. I got to tell you some of my other crazy things that I did. I was a police surgeon in New Haven. And it is a tough job being a policeman. You know, once the shooting happens, you know, you're on the street and anything could happen. And one of the guys was a former professional football player who then became a policeman. And he's on the phone one day and he says to me, Dr. Siegel, I said, what is it? I'm going to commit suicide. I said, Jimmy, you commit suicide. I'll never talk to you again. And I hung up the phone because I knew he was looking for me to say, I love you. And then he'll commit suicide. You know what I mean? He was just looking for somebody to make him feel like he's okay. And then he would go ahead to kill himself. Because if he wasn't going to, he's not going to call me to tell me. Well, about 20 minutes later, I hear a crashing in the waiting room at the office. And it's Jimmy running through the office into my room, screaming at me, you insensitive, stupid idiot. I have a gun in my mouth. I'm going to blow my brains out. And you say something so stupid and uncaring. I said, Jimmy, what? Did you notice something? What? You're not dead. And then suddenly a big grin appears on his face. And he realized, you smart ass. You got me to not kill myself because I was so mad at you. I thought he was going to throw me out the window when he first came in because he was in rage. And we became lifetime friends from that moment. And he never, you know, talked about suicide again. But I can, and my wife would often say, oh, that comes from God knows where. You know, the crazy things I'd say. I know now it's from my angel. His name is George. I met him in a meditation. But then I realized he was giving, like now when I'm talking to you, I don't stop because George is using me to talk. And two people have seen him standing next to me. And it was when I began to realize I'm not following my outline. I'm just standing here talking. Where's it coming from? Woman came up and said, there was a man standing in front of you for the whole lecture. So I drew his picture for you. And it was George. And after a Christian funeral, uh, Alva Worrell, mystic and healer, said to me, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, why do you ask? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. And that was George. And then I understood all why he was dressed the way he was, because that always puzzled me. But those things happen. So I rely on George. You know, I don't have to prepare and make an outline and. I know I'll get up and the problem will be for people to stop me from talking, <laughs> you know, holding signs up 10 minutes, five minutes, stop. But 
he just has the content to put into me and I do it and it feels good. Well, full, full disclosure, we, we had asked you to send over a high resolution headshot for your episode art. We never asked George, so apologize to him on, on the show's behalf. Um, right. I, I do want to ask you something uh, in, in seriousness, though. Your book came out, the, the 365 Prescriptions in 2009. Tell us why these prescriptions are more relevant than ever in 2021. Yeah, it's. I mean, even why would I write a thing like that? But, you know, it's like saying to people, why didn't you die when you were supposed to? And everybody had stories. And the other thing I realized was from speaking to doctors, you see, I recited a poem about cancer by Edward Albee, Miss G, about childless women get it, men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. A doctor yells at me from the audience. Just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. I mean, that's the craziness of doctors, you see. But it is true how your life affects, again, your internal chemistry, your health. And it's not a coincidence when you develop diseases at certain times in your life. You know, I'm not blaming people, but again, it's what's going on. So I learned that if you told a story, all the doctors would say that was a story. It's not threatening them. It's not statistical. You know, it's a story about somebody. So they could listen to a story. And then often they meet me and say, hey, I got a story for you. Then their beliefs would begin to shift because they were treating their patients differently. So I thought, why don't I write about the stories, the things that have helped people and me? And prescriptions for the soul but if you heal your soul you're going to heal your body and uh, i mean studies have been done now with actors you know drawing their blood while they're performing and it shows how it changes their chemistry you're, in other words if you're in a tragedy on broadway all winter you're more likely to get flu than somebody is in a mel brooks production laughing all night and i mean that and studies have been done just saying to people Laugh for no reason, three, you know, every three or four hours. At the end of the year, they studied them versus cancer patients who were not told to laugh for no reason. They had a better survival rate. So again, as I say, the psychiatrists too, a lot of them thought I was nuts. But when they were doing therapy for people with life-threatening illnesses, they noticed it was a pattern to the ones who did well. And so then I wasn't crazy anymore. You know, they learn something. And if people are willing to read a prescription a day, as I still do, you know, resets your brain. And you can't read it too often because by the time a year's up, you don't remember what you read 365 days ago, you know, and it gives you a statement, then a page discussing experiences and stories, and then finishing with a little boost at the end. As I say, it, it helps me focus myself every morning and get going there. And I would say to people, they could write their own book, keep a journal. That's another thing I have now I found in the house from 1996. They, and it was mostly about the pain I was feeling and what I learned from it. 
And I'm still learning that. And it was my wife that woke me up. She died a little over three years ago, by the way, because she found one of my journals and said, there's nothing funny in it because I used to keep it hidden. I don't want to upset the kids or her if they read it. And one night I forgot to hide it. So she said, there's nothing funny in it. I said, my life isn't funny. Then she told me funny stories I told her and the kids of things that happened at the hospital, but I never wrote about them. Boy, did that wake me up. And I'd say, we're all like that, you know? What do you remember to write about? Oh, what went wrong? Why don't you remember what you laughed about today, you know? And now at the post office, it's true. I go in there, you know, where the psychiatrist was when I said I'm depressed. And they all say to me, what are you going to tell us today? So we'll smile. See, now I have the reputation for being a comedian. So when I walk in, they're expecting me to do something that will make them feel better. And that's a compliment to me. I'm glad they feel that way. And the prescriptions, you know, it's something you can follow. It's not blaming you. It's not causing you trouble. It's about things that have happened. And you can learn from them and teach your kids. So what's that book for? To make you feel good about yourself and to love yourself. And you can make me your chosen dad and keep you healthy. Well, let me give you the things I grew up with from my parents, because it's part of what you're doing. Three things. I come home from school. I say, Ma, I got to make a decision at school. Choose something. What should I do? Do what makes you happy. Ma, I could use some advice. Do what makes you happy. And I learned from AIDS patients, cancer patients, let your heart make up your mind. When you follow your heart, magic happens. Those are quotes from them. Because I'd say, how come you did so well? They were following their heart. Bernie, you have a reputation of being a master storyteller, and you did not disappoint today. I'm so grateful for everything that you've shared with us, the anecdotes, the stories. And as you know, I wrap up every episode of my show by asking my guests one question. What is your biggest help in that one single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? That no matter what they heard from parents or school teachers or other authorities, they are a child of God. They are divine. And to know that and respect that, them, you know, about themselves so that they can find self-love or ask people like that young lady said, you're my chosen dad. Yeah, they can always see me as their chosen dad. I mean that. But to respect and love yourself and visualize that, spend time during the day, at night, whenever, make time for yourself to send love to your body and fill your heart with love and pump it out to your body. And believe me, I mean, that's a whole other thing that your body responds. You know, when people are going through surgery and have spent time loving their body and preparing it, uh, they do better than the people who, you know, see it as, oh, I'm being cut up, this is terrible. And it's so sad. But when they feel loved, the operating room is no problem. Everybody's their family and their drawings are beautiful. I love it. Bernie, this has been 
an honor and your, your anecdotes and stories have been phenomenal. Tell people where they can learn about more of you. More, let me say that again. Tell people where they can learn more about you online, get the books, all the good stuff. That's good. Thanks for reminding me. And, you know, when people say I love you, I know they agree with me. <laughs> but it, first of all, my website is Bernie Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L-M-D.com. There are articles there you could read. One that I loved was deceiving people into health. It shows you, again, mind, body, especially with children. I would lie to them all the time. And they would say, why don't the other doctors do that? Because it would free them from pain. You know, like telling them the alcohol sponge will numb their skin. You won't feel any needles. And they'd always say, why don't the other doctors do that? And it's that simple, you know, to work with your own body so you get through things a lot easier. The other is on the opening page, you'll see a couple of, what should I say? Because of the COVID thing, I'm not running support groups, you know, anymore. But you can call in by phone and be in a group with me. So we run a cancer patient group the third Wednesday of every month. And the first Friday of every month, more general group for, you know, people dealing with life. And you can tell from how many stories I tell. I'm always, you know, having plenty to share in, in those group meetings. Fantastic. Well, we will have everything Bernie Siegel in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com so that people can check it out, get the hand, get their hands on the books and, and take in everything that's Bernie Siegel. Bernie, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the Daily Helping Podcast. Well, what you hear in me is what's in you. So thank you. Absolutely. And I also want to thank each and every one of you who tuned in to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.